Jesus, we come to adore you. We come to honor you. We come to give you glory. We ask that you would have your way with us this morning, preparing our hearts to hear from you. Please speak through me powerfully. Empower me and use me for your purposes to edify the body here. And may it be as if Jesus Christ were physically speaking through me this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue our sermon series, Are You Prepared for Its Coming, as we talk about Advent. And I wanted to take a little bit of a different slant on this and talk about being prepared for the coming of the King. And what I wanted to do, though, to begin was, since we've been going over this in uh, the adult Sunday school class, and just kind of a a basic, um, more popular gospel presentation. And we're going to go through this, by the way, pretty quickly, so just sit up here and, and watch this. This is taken from the Four Spiritual Laws, okay? It's going to be familiar to, to a lot of you, if not all of you. Um, it's just still, in my opinion, probably the best, you know, understandable presentation of the gospel that, that, that you can learn and share with other people. It's very transferable. But they begin with simply this, that God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. And, of course, there's the verses that they use. Okay, pretty similar. Pretty self-explanatory. They're God's love and his plan. What I like about this verse is that it's so popular today because it's on TV today throughout the day because of football. It's in the stands when you see an extra point or field goal being kicked. You'll always see this verse up there. Um, God wants you. He loves you. He wants you to have a, a meaningful life. But why is it that most people aren't experiencing what the Bible calls the abundant life? It's because we have, we're sin. We're sinful. And our sin has separated us from God. And they go on trying to define what sin is. Uh, it's our stubborn self-will. We chose to go our own way. This self-will, it's characterized by an attitude of active rebellion or passive or difference. That's what the Bible calls sin. Real basic understanding of the gospel. And we are separated because of that sin from God. The wages of sin is death. I didn't put up here, by the way, the picture of a golf that they show. Okay, But we try and earn God's favor and earn heaven or eternal life, such as living a good life, having our own philosophy or religion, but we inevitably fail. And of course, the third principle explains the only way to bridge this gulf, and that is Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Okay, let me go back here, yes. Through him and him alone, we can now experience God's love and plan for our lives. Again, the first point. It talks about how he died in our place. And basically what this third point is talking about is the theological term what? Class? Substitutionary atonement. I needed someone, a substitute to atone for my sins. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, and he is the only way to God. And if you had the illustration as it does in the booklet there, you could say it would be a picture of him bridging the gulf that separates us from God. Okay? He died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Substitutionary atonement. Are you with me so far? Okay. Familiar with this, right? Anybody not familiar with this? The gospel is, in, in a sense, explained to you this way, correct? Good. That's not enough to know all this stuff. We must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know experience God's love and plan for our lives. Again, we must receive Christ, which is what it says. Receive him through faith, which is true. And receive Christ by personal invitation. And the whole idea is I need to get Jesus Christ in my life. Now, this is what is added by the four spiritual laws, which I like. Again, he says receiving Christ involves turning to God from self. And that is, of course, repentance. And you're trusting Christ to come into our lives, to forgive us of our sins, and to make us what he wants us to be. Just to agree intellectually that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins isn't enough. Nor is it enough to have an emotional experience. 
We receive Jesus Christ by faith as an act of the will. In other words, we're highlighting this point here. You receive him by faith. You just can't intellectually know it all. and It's not about just an emotional experience. You do it by faith as you willingly open the door of your life to him. And what they're stressing here is that you need to turn from self and trust Christ to come into your lives. Now, they give two circles that represent these kinds of lives. This is a self-directed life. This would be an unbeliever. Okay? You're in control of your life. Jesus has no influence in your life. People like this have never received Jesus Christ into their lives. They remain guilty and cut off from God by their sin. This is the Christ-directed life. You're following him as Lord. People like this have received Jesus into their lives. They've been forgiven and experienced God's love. Of course, the next question is very easy. Which circle best represents your life? And which circle would you like to have represent your life? And here's what you do. You receive Christ right now by faith through prayer. Prayer is talking to God. And God knows your heart and is not so concerned with your words as he is with the attitude of your heart. Everyone with me so far? Is everyone tired? Because I get a sense of like everyone just kind of tired. And then we have what was called the sinner's prayer. And my guess is that you were probably led to Christ in some way with this being presented from the pulpit in the church or some individual or at some sort of uh, you know, revival meeting or whatever where this was presented to you and, and you were called forward and you went through and prayed this a prayer something like this. Okay? Now the whole idea, obviously, would be what? That I have a sin problem, Right? And I need somebody to pay the penalty for my sins, and that's Jesus Christ. I need a substitute. How do I get that substitute in my life? Well, I simply need to individually receive him as my Savior and my Lord. Right? What they do a good job at touching on is this whole idea here of repentance. What does... What ideas would somebody that is just hearing the gospel for the first time think about repentance? Well, it involves turning to God from self and trusting Christ to come into our lives, to forgive us of our sins, and to make us what he wants us to be, and so I get eternal life. Is that what repentance is? Yes, but it is so much more. If I were to ask you as a group to define repentance, I'm sure I'd get a bunch of different definitions of what repentance is. Anyways, this is probably the best organized presentation of the gospel that you can share with somebody because it touches on all the, the, the issues. Now, if you receive Christ, you go through the prayer, we want to assure you of your uh, newfound faith. So we ask these questions. Did you receive Christ in your life? What does the person do as you're sharing the gospel with them in order to get Christ in your life? They prayed the prayer, and they, and they received them by faith, right? So according to his promise in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Fitting one, here's, his, here's my voice and opens the door. I'll come into him and dine with him. Where is Christ right now in your life? He's in your heart, right? We want him in your heart. Christ said he would come into your life. Would he mislead you? Well, no. Well, on what authority do you know that God has answered your prayer? Well, it's the trustworthiness of God himself and his word. And now we want to assure you that you have eternal life. I've gone through, I believe this message about Jesus Christ. I want him in my life, and I want to receive eternal life. And so I surrender myself to him by uh, reciting or praying the sinner's prayer. Right? That's kind of how it's basically presented and so you can know you have eternal life because I've asked Jesus Christ in my life. And so we would take the person who's prayed to receive Christ through this verse. Then we ask them, right now, where is Jesus Christ in your life after you prayed to receive him? And they should say what? In my heart. He's in my life. Therefore, I have eternal life because I believed in him to pay the penalty for my sins. Completely. Biblical. 
Any questions so far? This is a basic gospel presentation. But what I want to talk about, um, let me get back here. The state of the American church now. Plateau to decline. That message has been preached for hundreds of years, thousands of years. But more likely, most likely, this particular message has been preached for maybe about a hundred years. And you say, what are you talking about, Pastor Chris? Just follow with me. You just have to take notes on this because we're going to get into the history of repentance in a moment here. What is the state of the American church? Well, 80 to 85 percent of churches are plateaued or declining. Did you know that? In the mid-1960s, church leaders began to notice a disturbing trend in the state of the American church. And it's the American church, and, and, and maybe the church in general, but particularly the American church that has been preaching this message. Billy Graham preaches this message. You're taught to preach this message. That is what? Well, what's the disturbing trend? Something previously unnoticed in America, that the many major denominations have for the first time ceased growing. So what are some of the big denominations? Baptist Church, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Wesleyan, Methodist, you get, you get the idea. Those would be considered um, denominational churches. Bible Chapel is not a denominational church. It's an independent, non-denominational church. Okay? In 1988, Wynn Arn, a church growth pioneer, shocked the American church world with the following statement. He says, today of approximately 350,000 churches in America, it says four out of five are either plateaued or declining. Many churches begin a plateau or slow decline about their 15th to 18th year. And 85% are on the downside of this cycle. Now after that shock wore off, because of something that had never happened in the history of the American church, Christian leaders began to examine more closely the state of the American church. And when our statement was disturbingly accurate, there's been a decrease in weekly attendance. Church researcher David Olson pulled this information from 200,000 churches. These are not small sample sizes, folks. He found that the conditions that produce growth are simply not present in these churches. If the present trends continue, the church will fall further behind population growth. Well, we now know that the church growth has fallen behind population growth. So the percentage of the population attending a Christian church each weekend, he estimated, will decline from 20% in 1990 to about 15% in 2020. That's, there's just a decrease in weekly attendance. The plateauing church, which church researcher Tom Rainier, I have some of his books, uh, he describes the state of the American church based on his years of consulting with many different churches and denominations. This is what he writes. Eight out of ten of the approximately 400,000 churches in the United States they're declining or have plateaued. He also found within his research sample that 84% are experiencing a growth rate below the population growth rate for their communities. That's a plateaued church. I've talked to Gary McIntosh over the phone, the Great Commission Research Network. He said this back in 2011. He says, I've been working with a judicatory in the Midwest, and in their district, 97% of the churches in their district are in decline. Not plateau. They're in decline. One of the reasons that uh, another denomination, the Church of Jesus Christ, not Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ in North America, it's in a free fall because there are no turnaround pastors or what they call them. What is a turnaround pastor? Here's what's happened when it comes, comes to pastors. People are called at various ages, but if someone wants to, so as a young person, they're called to a pastor or church, uh, they do what? They immediately go to seminary. And what does seminary prepare them to do? 
Seminary prepares you to do one thing and one thing only, to be bluntly honest with you, which is what? Preach. You learn how to homiletics, hermeneutics, um, study the Greek and language so you can teach and preach the Word of God. What they don't teach you to do is when you have a member in your church that is gossiping and poisoning the church, and you've got to confront that person and deal with the cancer in the church and all the politics that go along with that because they may be related to somebody that gives a lot of money in the church, and you don't want to offend them because you need the money. I mean, you see how this, this stuff goes on and on and on. There's things like that that happen, okay? Um, how to hire people, the right people, for the, uh, for the job. I mean, all, all of that. So the church is a big organization, and it requires a certain type of person, which is why a lot of churches that have grown have taken Christians from the business world because they've been trained in how to deal with leading an organization. Most pastors tend to be passive. Read any book on, on leading a church, and you'll find a section on pastors in conflict, and what do they do? They always avoid conflict until it becomes such a problem and such a pain that the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. So they learn to deal with conflict quickly, but they have a passive nature. They're great teachers. They're gentle. They're great to comfort and so on. But to lead a church in decline requires a different kind of person. To lead a church that had purchased property and for 10 years could not get the church to move a fifth of a mile away, which is what I did in Indiana, required a pastor and a staff to take that church on his shoulders and to make tough decisions and to get that church there, only to have them say, after a few years, we're done with you. That church would have died if God hadn't brought the right person, in this case, me, to do that. It required a certain type of person. I'm not saying this in any way, shape, or form to... You build myself up, but they actually did a study of the type of person with Gary McIntosh that you're going to need to lead this church. I was the exact opposite of the previous pastor. You need a leader, someone that could uh, make tough decisions, move things forward, all of that. And it was hard, leading a bunch of volunteers. But there's a lack of turnaround pastors because the pay's not well, there's a whole lot of problems, and it is a calling. And you get beat up a lot by your congregation. And so what happens for passive people that get beat up a lot? They burn out and they leave. And I told you, that it was, I don't know what the new number is, but it was 1,800 pastors a month. Okay? Leave the pulpit. Because you're getting beat up. And it's, I will say this, it's not my experience with you guys. But in every church I've been a part of, that's what happens. So there's a lack of these turnaround pastors. And this, so I've, I've shared with you from all different kinds of denominations across the country what's happening. It's in the Presbyterian Church of America. Matthew Bowling wrote this, We can no longer simply ignore struggling churches. We must give attention to these churches before they die. Now these examples from different regions of the country reflect the realities that denominations, districts, and churches face in present-day America. My grandfather grew up in the Wesleyan Church. He was part of the district representative for the Wesleyan Church in central Ohio. So there are, when you have a group of churches, there are layers of, there's the president of the denomination and other people beyond that and so on, and the pastors and whatnot. Okay, I know you're not familiar with that being an independent church, but these represent hundreds of thousands of churches in their denomination, just within America Alone. Now, my question is this. With the good news of the gospel message that I just went over, because it is good news, and it's utterly unique to Christianity, that God offers eternal life to all those who believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, why is the American church in decline? If you think about it, if you put Judaism of a, of, a, of a rabbi up here, and if you put a Buddhist monk up here, and you put a, a pastor up here, and you put a Catholic priest up here, 
three out of the four are going to tell you what you have to do in hopes of eternal some sort of of earning some sort of eternal life. And they will never be able to give you any set standard. And there's a hope of heaven. Only one up here will be able to say to you, you simply need to do what? Receive the free gift of eternal life through belief in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. That, now if you logically, reasonably see that four people up here, which option are you going to choose? The fourth option, right? The, the gift. And yet, what's happening to the church in America? We're in plateau or we're in decline. How can that be? Well, I'm going to throw my, my hat into the ring and suggest to you that perhaps the reason lies with, to some extent, the kind of the, the, the gospel message in the way it has been presented to you. We're going to go through, for the rest of our time, what I call the history of repentance. You're going to have to get your Bibles out because I don't have, it would have been, I'd have been going through 50 more slides to get to probably the number of verses we're going to go through this morning. Okay? Now remember, 90% of the gospel that I presented to you, the four spiritual laws, was presenting to you the concept that you need a substitute to atone for your sins. How much of that presentation talked about repentance? Very little. They brought it up at least. This is the dilemma that we faced. Isaiah 55, 6-7. We we're running early this morning, so we're going to take our time. Get your Bibles out. You're going to have tired hands this morning. Okay, if you have a phone... Get it out. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. We're going to start in the Old Testament. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Obviously, you've heard me talk about seeking the Lord, right? The one thing, remember that? Prayer or calling upon him. That is absolutely vital and critical. But guess what else is equally as important? Forsaking wicked ways. And what do we call that? Leaving sin, repentance. And forsaking unrighteous thoughts. So it is impossible to talk about seeking the Lord without talking about turning from sin. And clearly this is an essential in the gospel message. Go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3. And this is, by the way, all these verses I'm going to highlight to you. There are plenty more. It's just for the sake of time we're highlighting these. Matthew 3, 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you're going to receive the Lord, is everybody there? And the salvation that he brings, in essence, what is he saying? You need to straighten up. You're going to have to make a way for the Lord. In other words... There is some heart work to be done in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a message of John the Baptist. And down in verse 8, in speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he adds this about repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Translation, 
demonstrate that your repentance is real. Now notice what they're not saying. Demonstrate that your belief is real. Demonstrate that your faith is real. Bear fruit in keeping with faith. No, it's bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What must you do to get into the kingdom? Repent. But what's Jesus' message when he begins his ministry? Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Does it sound familiar? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the salvation and the kingdom are the same. We could say repent, for salvation is at hand. But it's the same message from John to Jesus. So salvation, getting into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or getting eternal life, is available. It's at hand. What must you do? Repent. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Mark 1, 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying what? The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we talk an awful lot about believing. The way that I am teaching you, and it is biblical, and the way that you have heard the gospel, is what must you do to get eternal life? Believe. And yet, what is Jesus saying here? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and Believe. John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, if salvation is at hand, if you repent. We talk an awful lot about believing, about faith, but we don't talk about repentance. So, not only in the beginning of his ministry, but throughout his ministry, this is where I'm saving us time, because I could quote verse after verse after verse, what you will find is Jesus calling people to repentance. Now, this story is found in Matthew and Mark's gospel as well, but turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 29 to 32. Luke 5, 29 through 32. Again, you will find this story in Matthew and Mark's gospel. In Levi, meaning Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have, come, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And if you continue in Luke's gospel, turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. There were some present at that very time. This may sound familiar because about 11 months ago I was preaching on this. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all their Galileans because they suffered this way? You might remember Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor who ruled in behalf of Rome. Just to give some context here. He ruled Israel from uh, 26 to 36 A.D., the time of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a reputation for being inflexible and brutal. The Galileans were notoriously rebellious people. And so apparently there were some Galileans who had done something of a rebellious nature against Rome. They were tracked down into Jerusalem 
found the temple offering sacrifices, and they were killed in a brutal and gruesome way that their blood that was shed mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. And for the crowds, they raised the question of why were these Jews slaughtered who were doing what God required in their worship of him, as is written in the Old Testament. And shouldn't those pagan Romans be slaughtered? And what's Jesus' response to this in verse 3? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They aren't any worse sinners than anybody else. They're just like you. And unless you repent, you will perish. He continues, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, the Jews in Jerusalem tended to think that the Galileans, as they were inferior to them. So implied in this question was the idea that Galileans were bad and they deserved judgment. However, there's no indication of sin here. These people were, weren't doing anything with moral consequences. The tower just fell on them. They were just there when it falls. And what's his words to those people who were, quote-unquote, innocent? Verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. It is safe to say, excuse me, there is no salvation apart from repentance. How about this? So we have the words of John the Baptist. We have the, 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 the words and the teachings and the ministry of none other than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. What's heaven's testimony? What does heaven rejoice in? Turn to Luke 15, verse 10. Luke 15, verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over what? A sinner who repents. What about hell? What is hell's warning? Heaven's joy, hell's warning. Luke 16, 30 and 31. The story of the man that's in Abraham's bosom. The rich man and the beggar. This is hell's warning. The man crying out. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, this is someone that's in hell, they go tell my brothers who are alive, still on earth, they will what? So hell is crying out. It is so bad here. While you're alive on earth, what do you need to do? Repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead, which is what Jesus did, and people still will not repent. So the warning we see is always about repentance. So naturally, what is the message that is to be proclaimed? It's repentance. What are Jesus' words to the disciples right before he ascends to heaven? Shannon knows this. I had to look it up multiple times today. Luke 24, 46 through 47. This is a message that he said you are to preach. Say when when you're ready. When? You guys good? Okay. Luke 24, 46, 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Clearly, the message to be preached is repent, repentance. I read this, it was interesting, from John MacArthur. This is the first time he preached in Russia when the wall came down. Just listen to this, because this will be, sound so odd to us. Listen to this. So the first time I preached in Russia, it was fascinating. I preached a rather prolonged sermon in Kiev in the Ukraine, and the place was packed. People were outside 
looking through the window. It was very cold, but they stood there for hours. It was soon after the freedoms that had come, and there was just tremendous interest in the gospel. And the pastor, after I was finished preaching, said, pull it together and call for people to repent. And then I'll come up and we'll invite people to repent. Interesting, huh? And he did. He came up after I had preached. I think it was 11.30 in the morning by the time I had finished. And he said, if you desire to repent, please come up to the front. And now he's a pastor, John MacArthur. You maybe heard of him. He says, and I wasn't sure what that meant. But people began to come to the front. And when they came to the front, the pastor handed them the microphone and said, repent. And so they took their microphone and they repented publicly. Now, what do we do when we call someone when we preach a gospel message? Come forward and do what? Pray the sinner's prayer by faith and you are guaranteed of eternal life, right? You gain eternal life. He says, and as I remember it, the story goes on, after each person repented, there was rejoicing. And they sang a verse of a hymn, and that went on till 1.30, two hours of people repenting, because they understand what the Bible means by what the Bible says. It's about repentance. But what was the message of the disciples? What Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, listened to Peter's words, everyone turned to Acts 2, 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. What was Peter's gospel proclamation? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Acts 3.19, the second time Peter preaches. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And finally, and there are many more verses I could share, but for the sake of time, Turn to Acts 20, 20 and 22. Now, the message is obviously going to be the same because you have the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that fills believers. It's the same message, the same gospel, and it's the same call to repentance. What is Paul's message in Acts 20, verses 20 and 22? He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. And what was he, he taught? Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we see preached? It's repentance. Of course, included in that is what? Faith. But what you have heard is faith. And no repentance. Repentance has been at least, at the very least, minimized. Well, how about the early church? The early church fathers. Well, in 150 A.D., what was their message? That's about 50 or so years, 60 years after the death of the disciple John. You find this in the second epistle of Clement. And you just listen to me. i read this. It says, Let us not merely call him Lord, for that will not save us. For he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. But he who does what is right. Thus, brothers, let us acknowledge him by our actions. This world and the world to come are two enemies. This one means adultery, <coughs> corruption, avarice, deceit. While the other gives them up. We cannot then be friends of both. To get the one, you must give up the other. So in other words, if you want to get into heaven, what must you give up? 
Everything. He gave up the world and what the world offers. You just can't call him Lord. Because there are those that say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Right? So what did he say to them? I never knew you. If you go forward in time, how about Martin Luther in the 1500s? Everybody is here because of the work God did through Martin Luther. In his 95 theses, remember this? He nailed these to the door in Wittenberg in 1517. Here are just the first three. I'll translate these for you because the language is a bit hard to understand, but this is what he nailed to the door in Wittenberg in 1517. Number one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying repent meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. Your entire life, when Jesus says repent, Luther is saying is to be a whole life of repentance. Number two, second thesis. This saying cannot be understood of a sacrament of penance, i.e. of confession and absolution, which is administered by the priesthood. In other words, you can't grant somebody absolution from their sin instead of them repenting. Number three, yet he does not mean interior repentance only. Nay, interior repentance is void if it does not produce different kinds of mortifications of the flesh. Translation, it better show up in a broken and a contrite heart and in a life where the flesh or your sinful nature is being killed. So the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was launched on what doctrine? The doctrine of repentance. True heartfelt, life-changing repentance. You stop going the direction you're going. Remember this? You're going this way, and what do you do? Stop, and you go the other way. I'm going towards sin. I stop, and I go towards who? To God, to Jesus. Exactly. That's the simplest form what repentance is. But it's the doctrine of true, heartfelt, life-changing repentance. In 1674, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, you find the question, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, in apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So you, you have this, uh, I'm a sinful person, you recognize that, and you're just apprehended by the, the incredible offer of the mercy of God that's found only in Jesus Christ, doth with, with grief and hatred of his sin. So I, I'm sorry for my sin, I have grief over it, and I hate my sin, it's a horror to me. You turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. In other words, you turn from sin and you turn to God because you can't have one without the other. See, you just can't call people to believe in Jesus, pray a prayer, and invite Him into your life unless there is a clear understanding that they are turning from what? Sin. And this is the way we see this message in the New Testament, right? We see it in the message of John the Baptist. We see it in the message of ministry of Jesus. We see it in what does heaven rejoice in when a sinner repents. What is hell's warning? Repent. The early church fathers, 150 A.D., you need to repent. Okay? The Reformation launched out of the doctrine of repentance. It was written in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Repentance. Keep going in time. Move up forward to the time of the Puritans. The great British Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote this. Where mourning for offending God is lacking, there is no sign of any good will yet wrought in the heart of God, nor of love to him, 
without which God will never accept a man. In other words, if you are not mourning over your sin, then guess what? You're not ready. Else there is no hope of amendment. God will not pardon until he sees hope of, hopes of amendment. Until he sees a sinner longing to change. I'm so fed up with my sin. I need and I want to change. Now until a man confesses his sin and that with bitterness, it is a sign that he still loves it. While he hides it, spares it, and forsakes it not, it is still sweet in his mouth. And therefore, until he confess it and mourn for it, it is a sign that it is not bitter to him, and he will not forsake it. A man will never leave sin until he finds bitterness in it. And if so, then he will be in bitterness for it, and godly sorrow will work repentance. There is a sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to life. Godly sorrow always leads to repentance. I am sick and tired of my sin, and I want to change. Now, if you even move a little later into history, most of you have heard of a, a pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon. You recognize that name? Now, he just says it as strongly and as usually as well as can be said. This is what he says. So, again, we're seeing the same message preached from the New Testament time up until this time by reading Charles Spurgeon. There must be a true and actual abandonment of sin and a turning to righteousness in a real act indeed in everyday life. Repentance, to be sure, must be entire. How many will say, Sir, I will renounce this sin and the other, but there are certain lusts which I must keep and hold. Oh, sirs, in God's name, let me tell you, it is not the giving up of one sin, nor fifty sins, which is true repentance. It is the complete renunciation of every sin. If thou dost harbor one of those accursed vipers in thy heart, you've got to love the language, and dost give up every other, that one lust, likely one leak in a ship, will sink your soul. Think it not sufficient to give up thy outward vices. Fancy it not enough to cut off the more corrupt sins of thy life. It is all or none that God demands. Repent, he says. And when he bids you repent, he means repent of all your sins. Otherwise, he can never accept your repentance as real or genuine. And folks, has that not happened over and over and over again? In our time. All sin must be given up or else you shall never have Christ. All transgression must be renounced or else the gates of heaven must be barred against you. Let us remember then that for repentance to be sincere, it must be entire repentance. True repentance is a turning of the heart as well as the life. It is the giving up of the whole soul to God to be his forever and ever, it is the renunciation of the sins of the heart, as well as the crimes of the life. Now, folks, is that how the gospel was presented to you? No. In 1937, getting closer to our time, Dr. Harry Ironsides noted that biblical doctrine of repentance was being diluted by those who wish to exclude it from the gospel message. He wrote a book in 1937 called Accept You Repent, and this is what he wrote. The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. Translation, in conservative evangelical churches, repentance isn't being preached. That would include Bible Chapel. And this is exactly what we have today. Lewis Sperry Schaefer. Kind of, kind of funny, he was born in Rock Creek, Ohio, but he died in 1952 in Seattle, Washington. Do you know who he was? You do, but you don't. 
An American theologian, he founded and served as the first president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Berry Schaefer. He was an influential proponent of Christian dispensationalism in the early 20th century. This is what he wrote. He's an eminent theologian, by the way. The New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. The New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. I wouldn't judge him too harshly because I don't think if I hadn't mentioned this to you and asked you, what do you need to do in order to be saved? You would have simply said what? Believe. How much of your life has actually changed? You know, that's up to you and God. But clearly it wasn't presented to you. Repent and salvation is yours. It's always been about belief or faith. What has happened through time and through these men is repentance has been removed from the gospel presentation. Now, one of his students, this is, I think, even more devastating. You'll recognize this name, Charles Caldwell Ryrie. You recognize that? Some of you may have in your, in your homes the Ryrie Study Bible. A good, great Bible, great notes. Ryrie himself went on to become a world-renowned theologian and scholar. He stated this about Lewis Berry Schaefer, that he was an evangelist and an eminent theologian. He authored the Ryrie Study Bible. And this is what it says in the Ryrie Study Bible. It calls repentance a false addition to faith. When made it a condition of salvation. One of their disciples, Zane Hodges, a theologian, said this. And you and I dealt with this in campus ministry. And we dealt with it even in church. But he said this. How fortunate that one's entrance into the kingdom of God does not depend on his discipleship. John Piper, who uh, reviewed years ago, over 20, 30 years ago, actually, a a book called The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur in in the magazine The Standard, he wrote this about this book that MacArthur wrote that basically is trying to put repentance back into the gospel. So there is, this is Piper's review, so there is no necessary connection between saving faith and obedience or repentance. Faith is essentially a momentary mental assent to gospel facts. Folks, boy, that is what has happened today. I've seen it over and over and over again. Fruit is not a legitimate test of faith's authenticity. The resulting mass of disobedient nominal Christians are accommodated under the category of mere believer over against the category of disciple which refers to the stage two Christian who makes Jesus as Lord of his life. This was a lordship salvation debate that went on. In other words, you, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, right? But I don't accept him as my Lord. Now, it can be presented to you that he is, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. But do you really know what that means? Until you understand what it means to repent, until I've explained to you, I mean, the way the gospel, perhaps inadvertently, but the way the gospel has been presented to everybody here, is it's a good deal. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I receive eternal life, and I'm saved. Was that the message that I just went over with you? What did they preach? Repent. Now they added, Paul added faith. You have repent and faith. They're, they're connected. While they're different, they're the same, they're on the same coin. Faith on one side of the coin, repentance on the other. They can't be separated. And I had, we won't have time because I'm finishing up here. We'll get into the other part. What, what is biblical repentance next week? 
But what has happened is the message of repentance in the gospel has been lost in our day. And the only result is so-called Christians who live hypocritical lives. Because, guess what? What have they not repented of? Their sin. These so-called Christians, they live hypocritical lives, damaging the reputation of the church, and they're deceived into believing that they are saved when, in fact, they are not. Now, here's the point. You can always get somebody to add Jesus to their life. You can always get people to say, I want Jesus in my life, I want him to forgive all my sins, and I want to make sure that he takes me to heaven. You start talking about repentance and true repentance and call on sinners to abandon their sin and to turn to God wholeheartedly. Well, folks, you're talking about something completely different, aren't you? People want to hold on to their sin while having it conveniently forgiven. Now, I want everyone to go to Matthew 21, 28 to 32. We're going to close with this, these verses. It's a story of the, uh, the prodigal son and, the, and the, the father and the son and who obeys and who doesn't obey. Matthew 21, 28 to 32. This is the words of Jesus. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. That change your minds was the word what? Repentance, okay? And believe him. So you have in this story, as we close here, two kinds of people. Those who pretend to be obedient, but are actually rebellious. And those who begin rebellious, but repent. There's no salvation, according to this story, apart from what? Repentance. And so I want you to rethink repentance this week. Next week we'll define repentance. Okay? It'll take the, about as long as this sermon did. Then I'm going to ask you to come forward in an act of obedience. And, and privately you can come forward and, as you're practicing confession and repentance. And we'll close our service on the 22nd that way. Let's pray. Lord, we all struggle with sin. And I long for the day when I will be set free from the shackles of sin that are over my my sinful nature, my flesh. I tire of being shackled by sin, but yet I know that I've come to you in repentance and in faith, trusting you for the promises that you give me. And as my eyes have been opened this week, preparing this sermon, I pray that you would open eyes of everybody here as we rethink and look at these, this idea of repentance that is absolutely critical, that if one is going to get eternal life, if one's going to go to heaven when they die, they will have to have repented of their sin. Empower me to, to accurately Biblically explain next week what true biblical repentance is.
in this Advent season, may we confess our sins and repent of our ways as we prepare for your coming. In Jesus' name, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.